Welcome to the September 2018 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, my friends. I've got the authors and editors from Family Tree Magazine here to help you dig even further into your family history. Andrew Cook is here to kick off this episode with a quick look at the events that impact your family history in This Month in Family History. And then author Rich Benizia will be here with top tips for using unusual genealogical records. In DNA Deconstructed, genetic genealogy instructor and author Shannon Combs Bennett will provide an answer to a very frequently asked DNA question. And the author of the 101 Best Websites list, Dave Frixell, is back, this time to share some of the best websites for sharing family history. And in the Stories from the Stacks segment, straight from the home of Family Tree Magazine, Cincinnati, Ohio, Larry Richmond, the manager of the Genealogy and Local History Department at the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County, will be here to introduce you to the many genealogical treasures that that library has to offer. And then we'll wrap it all up with any last minute things that you got to know about from the editorial staff of Family Tree Magazine in This Just In. As always, we have a lot to cover, so let's get to it. First up, this month in family history. This month in 1906, a law overhauling the U.S. naturalization process took effect. Signed into law by President Theodore Roosevelt, the Naturalization Act of 1906 created the Bureau of Immigration and Naturalization, a single federal agency that would manage and standardize all naturalization cases in the United States. Courts had previously created their own standards and procedures when it came to naturalization, and records varied greatly in the amount of information they contained. But beginning on September 27, 1906, all courts throughout the country began using the same naturalization forms, a major boon for researchers. This required the new agency to develop, print, and distribute forms to the more than 3,000 courts in just 90 days, a massive task that is said to have been completed by just four employees. The new forms asked for much more detail than their predecessors, so genealogists can expect to find more information in naturalization documents created after 1906. The Act also introduced a third kind of naturalization document that researchers will find useful, the Certificate of Naturalization. Like its sister documents, the Declaration of Intention and Petition for Naturalization, the Certificate of Naturalization provides valuable information about immigrants looking to continue their new lives in the United States. Joining me for the feature interview this month is Rich Venezia. Now, Rich is the founder of Rich Roots Genealogy, and he specializes in 20th century immigrant ancestry, and he assists his clients with dual citizenship applications for Ireland and Italy. He is a proud Italian dual citizen, and he spoke about how to grow empathy from Uncovering Your Roots at TEDx Pittsburgh 2017. He was also a member of the research team of the PBS TV show Genealogy Roadshow for two seasons, and he consulted on the Travel Channel's Follow Your Past show. Today, Rich is here to talk about some unusual genealogical records. Hi, Rich. Howdy. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's great to have you here. You know, we have all heard about census records, vital records, all the other kind of staples of genealogical research. But 
When we dig a little bit deeper, there are some very unusual and kind of rather, I think, rewarding records that can be found. And I know you shared several of those in your recent article for the magazine. Tell us about that. Sure. So I, as you mentioned, I specialize in especially immigration-based research. And a lot of times people ask me, you know, what is the best way to find out the place of foreign origin for my immigrant ancestors? And the answer to that is, is really different depending upon, you know, whether they immigrated here in the 1700s or whether they emigrated here 50 years ago. You know, uh, the record sets are different and there's a lot of different things depending upon the time frame. So in the various record sets that I looked at, I covered some different time frames and a bunch of different record sets that often go overlooked. People usually go straight to ship manifest, they go straight to naturalization records, but especially earlier on, those records either don't exist or aren't really as helpful as they become in the 20th century. So one of the record sets that I talked about was early alien registration records. And a lot of people don't know that there was alien registration well back, right around the time of the founding of the country. A lot of people only know about the alien registration in uh, around World War II era. And starting in 1798, actually, every free white alien that arrived into the U.S. was supposed to register with their nearest district court where they intended to take up residence. Now, Unfortunately, most of these records have since been destroyed, but there are a few that still exist in the form of addendums to naturalization records. So that's what I wrote about, and that is that between 1816 and 1828, if you happen to be lucky enough that your immigrant ancestor naturalized during that time frame, the law of the land at the time was that a copy of their alien registration was supposed to be included in that naturalization record. And more often than not, it lists an exact place of origin more so than just Ireland or Scotland or England. So that's a really exciting and often underused source for people that have early immigrants in trying to figure out, you know, where they, they might have come from overseas. Exactly. I mean, that would be, it's fabulous to have another resource to, because that's a tough thing to find. And did you say all the way back to 1816? Yeah, so so the law was between 1816 and 1828, that a copy of this registration was supposed to be added to the naturalization record. So if you look for a naturalization between 1816 and 1828, the copy of this alien registration should be you know, sort of before or after the the rest of the naturalization package. And it's great because most of these original records have since been destroyed, but we do have some of these copies for people that naturalized in that time frame. Excellent. Now, I know that one of the other records you talked about in the article was passport applications. And I think this one gets missed a lot. Tell us about these. Sure. So, Nowadays, most people don't even think much about having a passport. They know that if they want to go abroad, they have to get one, right? But it actually wasn't until the 1940s that passports were required. There was a couple of brief periods in in World War I and in the Civil War where people needed to have passports in order to travel abroad. But for most of the rest of the time frame before the 40s, you didn't need one. However... A U.S. passport is automatic proof of citizenship, right? So even though a lot of people didn't necessarily need one if they were traveling in the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, a lot of naturalized immigrants would have gotten one anyway 
because it was proof that they were, in fact, a U.S. citizen. And on the passport applications, which we can view online all the way up to 1925 on websites like Ancestry, on Family Search, and a bunch of other places, it asks for a place of birth. And more often than not, especially people that were born in uh, overseas, are more specific than just the name of the country when it asks, where were you born? So these can be really helpful, certainly only for, you know, our immigrant ancestors that naturalized. Obviously, you're not getting a U.S. passport if you're not a naturalized U.S. citizen. But you can take a peek for those, perhaps if your ancestor traveled, if you know that, or maybe you don't know that, you might take a peek in those databases to see if you might be able to find one of these applications. Well, it's a great example of kind of needing to understand the times and the motivations, right? Because it's the motivation behind why they would want it, even if they weren't legally told that they had to. Where are some of the locations? What kinds of websites and databases and, and archives could we turn to for those kinds of records? They originally microfilmed by the National Archives, and the originals are held at the National Archives down in College Park, Maryland, um, and that's up to March 1925. But they were also microfilmed, so you can access that microfilm at any of the National Archives branches, and that microfilm has also been digitized on websites like Ancestry, Family Search. Most of the big genealogy websites would have a copy of that microfilm. And again, it's, it's from when they started issuing in 1795 all the way up to the end of March 1925 are the timeframes that you could find those applications. We might even see photographs on passport records, couldn't we? Indeed, yeah. So it was around the mid-19-teens that they started having folks include photographs in their applications. And so it would be the same photograph that eventually would be appended to their passport. Starting around the mid-19-teens, you'll see photographs on these applications as well, which is really exciting, especially if maybe you don't have a photograph of your ancestor, or you only have one, or you have a photo maybe that you think is them, and the photo on their passport application could certainly help you determine that you've got the right person. Excellent. Now, the third one I wanted to definitely touch on as far as our unusual records for genealogy would be city marriage returns. Tell us what these are. Sure. So I highlighted city marriage returns as kind of a broader idea of the fact that a lot of times more than one copy of the same record was created. And so I specifically highlighted a marriage return from the city of Pittsburgh, which is where I live, in the early 1900s. At this time frame, you're going to have seen a whole bunch of different copies of the same record. So you're going to have a county record, you're going to have a county marriage docket, and you also have this city marriage return. If you look at the county records, which is what you'd most likely go to, you go downtown, you go to the courthouse, you get a copy of the marriage license application, you don't get necessarily specific information on a place of origin. But on a copy of the city marriage return, because these individuals married in the city of Pittsburgh, and the city of Pittsburgh kept their own set of marriage returns, there's additional information on the city marriage return, including their place of foreign origin, that isn't on the other records. And that's because you know, perhaps the people that were filling out one record versus the other, you know, knew that the county marriage return just asked for the country of birth. But the city marriage return might ask for a more specific birthplace, or it was just more common when you had more space, perhaps, to write more detailed information. And what's also interesting to note is that the city marriage return that I highlighted was filled out by the priest. 
So we can also think about, oh, there might be a fourth record of this same event, of this same marriage in the records of the church. And so it's just important to, to think about and remember that just because you find one copy of the record doesn't mean there might not also be, you know, a town level copy if you're looking at the state level copy. Or maybe there's a county level copy or maybe there's a, a denominational copy, a religious copy of the same event. Again, great clues. There's a whole breadcrumb trail, isn't there, that can yeah. lead you from one record to another. And as you say, each one, even though they're covering the same event, could certainly hold new information. I love this example that you have. And I'll give a link to this on our show notes page. Because this is on the website on the Family Tree Magazine website. And there's an example of the record there that you've been talking about. And you got to love here's the birthplace Moravia and the, and the name of the towns. So this is just huge in terms of kind of getting over the pond. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so exciting. I think that you've really kind of opened up our eyes and, and our ears to the idea. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, you know, that there are more trails to follow. And there are some unusual sources that might seem like a duplication of something we've already done. But in reality, don't you think it's just best to gather every applicable record, even for the same event? Absolutely. And, and the thing about these is, if you look into these record sets, and you know what, maybe they don't tell you the place of foreign origin, but you're able to find a copy of this record for your person of interest, it helps adds to the family story, right? It gives you more documents, it gives you more evidence for information that you're looking for, and it helps you learn more about the people that you're researching. So even if it the first you know, few documents don't answer that question of where overseas they came from, they're still valuable resources and records and information to have and to add to your collection of family historical documents. Very well said. Rich Venezia, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. And I know everybody's going to be heading to the show notes to go click through and read about all of these unusual genealogical records. Thanks again. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Shannon Combs Bennett here with this month's DNA Deconstructed segment. And why don't I show DNA for a region that I know I have ancestors from? I think I can feel some of you nodding while others are shaking your head. And it could be for a variety of reasons. Maybe you're confused. Maybe the DNA test doesn't show you what you think it should. So let's break this down a minute. Many kits are sold due to pure curiosity of the customers. Maybe they aren't genealogists. Maybe they're just curious to see if those family stories are true. Who am I becomes a big question the older you are. Do I have any interesting tidbits out there? Plus, so many more questions. However, if you do not understand what the results mean, you could get a surprise or even feel let down. In this segment, I'm gonna to try to explain what your results mean and why you may be confused about what they're telling you. First, keep in mind, these results only show you the information you inherited from your ancestors. Due to a process called recombination, DNA is passed down to each generation in a new combination of genes, and only a portion of the parent's DNA is passed to you. Just remember, full siblings only share 50% DNA in common on average. 
So even siblings do not inherit the same ethnic markers, let alone genes. This means your genetic family tree and genealogical family tree will not match 100%. It all depends on what you inherited from your parents and then what they inherited from their parents and so on back in time. Second, ethnicity analysis is constantly being redefined. We are lucky if you think about it. As we study genealogy and genetics, we're also watching science develop right in front of our eyes. As the companies learn more about ethnicity traits and scientists also, we can learn more about control groups and then they put more information out on their websites and into their analysis. For example, Ancestry DNA, they just released new ethnicity results to their customers the beginning of September. If you tested there, compare your old results with the new ones. It is obvious by looking at them side by side how they have refined certain areas and how the science is developing right in front of us. The takeaway is this. Ethnicity results will only show you what you inherited. And since the science is still being developed not only in the laboratory but by the companies, we need to think about how your results are going to change over time. This is not a static thing. We're going to see new results and new ethnicities as the years go by. Probably in about 10 years or so, I think, we should see it start to level out and really be a good tool for us. Right now, however, take it with a grain of salt, have some fun, say, hey, look what it showed about me, and realize that your tests are still being developed. And with that, I hope you have a great time going out there and learning about your ethnicity results from whatever company you tested with. And I'll see you next month. Thanks. As you heard last month, the brand new 101 Best Websites for Genealogy list has been published for 2018. And here to talk about it and some of the best sites for sharing your family history is the author, Dave Frixell. Hi, Dave. Hello. Good to be here as always. Always good to have you here. And you've got so many great websites again on the list this year. So this month, we just wanted to kind of zero in on those sites that you've identified that you feel like will help us uh, save and really, more importantly, share our family history. What have you got for us? Well, it's interesting. These vary pretty widely in terms of whether people have heard of them or not. So, you know, for example, the list starts with Facebook, which you might not initially think of as like, why I use that to find, you know, see what my family's cat is doing. Why am I? But actually, (laughs) there are a lot of things you can do with Facebook. You know, all your favorite genealogy groups probably have their own Facebook page. You can find uh, Facebook groups for by you know, genealogy by region, by family. I think there are like 11 different family search Facebook groups, for example. Facebook, you, might, you know, in between, you know, checking up on, you know, those cats and, you know, trying to change your friend's political beliefs, you can spend some time on Facebook not getting angry, you know, or um, uh, going, aw, cute stuff and uh, actually help your research. There are even tools where you can actually post your 
family tree on Facebook and share it that way. Exactly. And you know what I do is I, I'm not big on watching the news feed, but I do head to that search box at the top. And you can keyword search in there. And I'm always amazed how many really unique groups are out there, and particularly for locations. So I'll tend to focus on a location and put the word history or genealogy. Wow, you just find this global brain trust of people who know about that location sometimes you know you might find somebody in an ancestor's hometown who will help you yeah um you know that way and how hard would that have been otherwise you know um back in the you know in the olden days right um particularly for more obscure locations so it's pretty handy the next one on the list is also pretty is much more obscure although lately it's actually been in the news and that's the jed match ged match and you may have heard of this because it's been used recently to solve murders. Yes. Um, it's the site where people voluntarily upload their DNA data. So it's been in the news because some of those things that have been uh, you know, posted online for DNA have then been used to sort of backtrack and create family trees of people who turn out to be, you know, say, serial killers. Now, you can use it for a lot more, you know, lighter <laughs> things than that. But, but if you're only, you want to crack, uh, you know, crime, that's also the place to start. It's a very bare-bones site. But what it does, obviously, you know, based on catching serial killers, pretty amazing. Right. And it's a matchmaking site for genetic genealogy. So that's gedmatch.com. And I understand it's just a free registration. You can put your autosomal DNA on there and... Yeah, and they're fighting crime at the same time, it seems like. And it's one of the few ones where it's not tied to actually doing genealogy tests. In other words, they're not yeah. selling you genealogy tests, um, which then would get your stuff you know, posted on particular ones. But if you've already had a test, then you can use the site to help find you know, genetic matches that you might not. Otherwise, if they're you know, not in the same you know, testing universe as you. Right. In the sharing category, this is a place to share your DNA results, hopefully make more matches and be able to, to do more genealogy, genetic genealogy work. Perfect. Right. I mean, it's, again, you know, another sort of cutting edge kind of, kind of thing. Right. Now, there, in the years past, we've had a lot of sites on the 101 best list where basically their function is uploading your pedigree charts of one sort or another. And mm-hmm. a, to be honest, a lot of that role has now been taken by sites like Ancestry or MyHeritage where you, you upload your tree, and it's often as part of some other you know, kind of operation. But we do have one on the, on the list still, which is Genie, G-E-N-I, Genie.com. Um, their world family tree has more than 121 million individuals, and it can be searched by some of those other sites. So you're kind of getting extra you know, bang for your buck. So if you're interested in sharing and also finding a place to post your site and maybe you know you don't you don't want to use one of those other services this is one that really focuses just on that you know aspect of of sharing and the tools are you know very slick and you know the basic thing is all free so and you can invite your family members even if they aren't genealogists to kind of come and at least see the tree right right it's it's really handy if you don't want to go to the trouble of creating your own website and family tree and all that sort of thing because i mean that's what i've done and that's how my cousin checks out family tree every now and then and she'll check my website but if i hadn't wanted to go to that much trouble i could have just done done one on genie uploaded it and you know boom there would be all the information for family members to share and they don't have to be as you know tech savvy or really into genealogy just like 
you know, who did you say, you know, uh, Great Uncle Bob was exactly? You know, right. and they can go on and look instead of, like, calling you. Excellent. And then the next one list, actually, I should have my wife talk about because it's Pinterest, and that's pretty much how she spends her mornings is looking. She's looking at quilt sites on Pinterest. Right. But she keeps telling me that it's amazing for genealogy, and it's sort of like a digital scrapbook for pictures, you know, documents, that sort of thing, anything that you can, you know, capture and then save. It's like sort of like a giant, you know, bulletin board that you create and curate and then share as much or as little as you want um, with the world. So while it's obviously great for sharing, you know, quilt designs, it's also pretty cool for old family photos, census documents, you know, all that sort of thing. So it's an unusual, and in fact, it was really it's just been in the news lately because it has really become popular and interestingly in a sort of slow and steady way unlike some of the you know boom and bust kind of websites pinterest has really grown in a smart way yes. um and uh, seems to have you know have some staying power so it's worth maybe investing your time into your own pinterest thing and then you know if you're like my wife you can pretty well kiss your mornings goodbye <laughs> Well, and and a neat thing about Pinterest is that you can share your own content on the web. I know we do that from our Genealogy Gems website, but you can also share other people's stuff. So you don't have to have a website or a blog or anything like that to be able to create these boards and collect ideas. And you can even pin things from distant cousins when you find their websites. It's nice. Everybody can participate. And, And you're absolutely right. It's growing. In fact, the way Facebook has changed some of their algorithms, we're finding that Pinterest is actually driving more traffic and interaction to our website than even Facebook is. So it's really grown. Yeah, and it it seems to be, you know, very quality kind of, you know, operation. Um, And you write about the sharing. It's so interesting. You know, again, you know, my wife will be, you know, cruising along and she'll find a picture of one of her quilts posted to somebody else's, you know, Pinterest. So it's kind of an exciting sort of thing. But, again, what a great way to, you know, if you found one of your ancestors' pictures, maybe quite likely that the person who's interested in that is also interested in the rest of your family tree. Good point. And then finally, you know, speaking about cat videos as we were before, (laughs) um, there's YouTube, which has gone so far beyond just funny cat videos that it's, you know, really become like its own television network. And, again, you might not think of this as a place to go as a genealogy site or app or whatever. But again, if you just search for the word, you know, genealogy or family history or whatever there, you'll find like something like a quarter million different videos that fall under that category, including this Lisa Louise Cook person, I think, (laughs) you know, and you find genealogy roadshow videos, pretty much every topic that, you know, you can think of if you're stumped. Um, or you're curious to learn more, you're just getting started, YouTube has a uh, video, you know, about it. And, you know, they're, they're free. Um, you may have to sit through an ad or two, um, but, you know, it's a small price to pay for, uh, you know, solving your genealogy dilemmas or learning how to, you know, do some advanced research skills that you might not have to, you know, be able to master. And what a great way to do it, just you know, fire up your computer or your Apple TV or whatever, and, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, YouTube and some friendly face from, say, Family Tree Magazine or Ancestry or someplace solving all your problems for you. 
Exactly. You just use the search box, search for what you're looking for. And I have a fun fact for you, Dave. Talk about this in my video class when I'm teaching is that did you know that in 60 days, YouTube uploads more video than was created in the 60 years of the three major networks? (laughs) I kid you not. It's unbelievable. So you know, there's genealogy. Well, and so use the search box. It's it's grown so much now. We got to use that search box. Well, yeah, otherwise get... you'd never find anything. Exactly. Right? I mean, you'd be overwhelmed. And, and that way, you're searching for what you want, and you're avoiding the stuff that you don't want to see. Because I think some people have a hesitation about, oh, I don't want to run into junk that I don't want to see. Well, use that search box and create your own playlist. YouTube will start saying, oh. They like genealogy? Have I got genealogy videos for you? (laughs) Hey, this is a great list. I love it. We're going to have all these in the notes for this episode on the webpage. And as always, Dave, thank you so much for finding all these terrific websites. Thanks for having me. Each library has its own unique genealogical offerings, some unique to the area and some with universal appeal. Today in our Stories from the Stacks segment, we are going to explore the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County, which happens to be located in the hometown of Family Tree Magazine. Larry's worked at the library since 2004, and he's the manager of the Genealogy and Local History Department. And his responsibilities include the library's digitization efforts and special collections. Welcome to the show, Larry. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for having me. So happy to have you here. I know the folks at Family Tree Magazine absolutely love your library and frequent it often. And I know that you have a vast array of resources there at the library. Can you give us an example of a collection in your digital library that you think could benefit genealogists wherever they are? Yeah, I think so. We are really proud of our uh, digital library, uh, Lisa. We have 56,000 items on it and 71 collections. So there's a bunch to choose from, but we have three that I'd like to talk about today if we have time. First is what's newest to me, and I've actually been in this department uh, only since January, but this is the first thing that we worked on. It's called Disabled American Veterans. Some of you are probably familiar with the DAV. It's a prominent veterans organization that was founded actually here in Cincinnati in 1919 following World War One, and uh, we were able to digitize their newsletters uh, from ni- the 1940s and the 1950s. Uh, and so, for genealogists, this would be particular interest for anyone who's looking at veterans' issues. Specific veterans' obituaries are there. It's just a really neat post-war look at veterans when it was a big. We had a lot of veterans coming home from the wars and and lots of issues. And so, it's really a, a really unique view into that uh, aspect of our society. That's a great example of a collection that certainly has roots in your town there of Cincinnati, but also probably reaches on a national level, because they were certainly looking at the issues of all veterans. So that's a wonderful collection. And that, again, is available in your digital library. So this is something that folks can access through your website. Do they need a library card to do that? No, they don't. That's that's one of the things that, that we are, are really excited about, about the digital libraries. All you need is a, an internet connection, uh, basically. Uh, I know you'll have the links in the show notes. The uh, You can just go to digital.cincinnatilibrary.org and have access to, uh, to everything that we have. So. Well, terrific. So you said you had three collections for us. And how about one that's unique to Hamilton County? 
Yeah, so uh, that would be the the next one I'd like to talk about. It's really uh, it's a record of our indigent burial records, and as genealogists, we know that those with less means are hardest of all to track. And this is a fascinating collection of records that really we're able to get in our library by pure happenstance. In fact, what happened was a county employee retired. And the county actually made a determination they didn't need these records anymore and were going to get rid of them. Uh, so she uh, rescued them and kept them at her desk until she retired. And then uh, once she retired, they put them on the, the dock to be thrown away. And they actually called our office and two of the librarians rushed over to get them so that they wouldn't be thrown away. So they were rescued actually not once, but twice. And these records consist of burial records, uh, indigent burial records in Hamilton County from 1931 through 1981. So it's quite a swath of information there. And so they're fascinating. They shed light on those who passed away uh, in Hamilton County whose families, you know, couldn't afford to, to bury them. So the records include where they passed away, which, which hospital and like where their graves are located. So it is a little bit just, I was reviewing those yesterday and it's, you know, it doesn't make for a happy day, but uh, those records are definitely uh, important. And some of the later records even include contents, uh, you know, not to be too macabre, but the contents of the, uh, the clothes, uh, you know, what was found on the body, the, at the address of the deceased. And then if for some reason they, the, they were exhumed, it says where they were relocated to. So you can just imagine what a treasure trove. Uh, resources that would be for those who are looking for relatives in Hamilton County who, you know, by one reason or another, you know, had to be buried in the indigent cemetery here in the county. Wow, that's an amazing collection. How how amazing it survived the way it did. And yet, you know, that's a perfect example of a of a collection that could solve a long lost mystery. I mean, something where somebody has lost track of an ancestor and you don't know what's happened. And here, this could be the record that holds it. Are all the people named or are there some John Doe's, if you will, in that collection? There are some John Doe's for sure. But, uh, you know, uh, I have reviewed, you know, obviously I haven't looked at all of them, but in my research for today, I looked at probably hundreds and, and, you know, I would say almost all are in fact uh, named. So, so that, that's a good, that's a good thing uh, for sure. And they do vary, you know, it, it's for, it's a long period of time. So sometimes it's just the name and, you know, where they're buried, which is in itself very valuable. But uh, some of the later records, like I said, even have more, more information. It, it's really pretty interesting. Well, I bet every uh, locality, every county wishes they had alert librarians like you guys have to keep their eyes on such records and to keep them from being destroyed. What a wonderful asset. You mentioned you have a third one for us. What have you got? Yeah, now this is something that we're still uh, it's ongoing. One of our uh, librarians here, uh, Steve Headley, uh, is his name, discovered three columns uh, in the older Cincinnati papers. They were appeared in the Cincinnati Enquirer, the Cincinnati Commercial Gazette, and the Cincinnati Times Star between 1884 and 1886. And what they outlined was African-American, basically we're calling them African-American society columns. So they were uh, printed on a different day in each of the papers, and it were apparently an effort to increase the newspaper sales to the black community. So the, the fascinating thing about these were, uh, and the reason they're so interesting to uh, genealogical researchers, is because they were written by non-journalists. And, and I'll explain why that matters in just a second. But uh, they were written by uh, a, pr- a prominent African-American teachers, uh, Charles W. Bell and Susie Johnson Higgins, uh, we believe. That's the two authors. And the column covered prominent people and activities in the community. Since 
uh, the authors weren't journalists, as I indicated. They actually referred to everyone by their whole name. So instead of the, the practice at the time would be to refer to Mrs. Robert Harlan, you know, referring to the gentleman's name. Uh, when you're actually referring to the wife. But in this case, they actually give the full name of the wife. So Mrs. Mary Harlan. And from a research standpoint, that's really gold for two two reasons. For one, it gives us look into the African-American community in a time uh, when that's pretty hard to do, almost anywhere in the country, and certainly in Cincinnati as well. And it mentions births, marriages, uh, death announcements, church, civic, fraternal organization, and business as well as businesses leading African-American, African-Americans uh, of the time. And uh, they also, from an African-American history uh, standpoint, they talk about the editorialize on the race issues of the time, both on the local and national level. And so it's just really an unbelievable uh, a resource that we, we literally just happened upon. Like, yeah, obviously, they're in the microfilm and, you know, they're there for anyone to see, but who knew they were? And so we just got started and we expect these to be a total of, thousand newspaper columns over that period of time. So you can just imagine uh, how important this is to, to get out so that people can discover the, these facts about relatives in, in this community. Wow. And so you guys are curating this. You've, you've had the newspapers and the microfilms, but you spot this unique column and you see it's running through time and realizing that that in itself could be a unique standalone collection in a digital library. And that's the beauty of libraries coming together with uh, technology and what it's making available to us. Now you don't have to necessarily go through the entire newspaper to be able to get a focused collection like that. That is, sounds fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we were really pleased to find it. Uh, and, and again, it was just pure happenstance by virtue of research uh, for another reference question that, that Steve came upon this. And uh, I'm really excited about it. I just think it's going to provide an insight that we wouldn't otherwise have. Absolutely. Well, Larry, these are three terrific collections and great examples of what we should really be looking for in any of our public libraries. You know, every library has its own little gems, don't they? Absolutely, yes. And we're here to provide access to uh, information, and uh, there's no better way to do that than uh, through our digital library. So we're really pleased with it. Wonderful. Well, tell us again before I let you go the name of the library, how they can find you, and what your website address is. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh we are the public library of Cincinnati in Hamilton County, and we're referring to the digital library today. And our uh, address is digital.cincinnatilibrary.org. Fantastic. Larry Richmond, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having Lisa. This just in, there's a new book at Family Tree Magazine, and here to tell us more about it is the editor of Family Tree Magazine herself, Diane Haddad. Hi, Diane. Hello. You guys always have such great new books coming out, and of course, it's fall, and this is a wonderful time to see something new to put on our bookshelf. What have you got for us? Well, a lot of books that we do are things that we'd like to use as we research, and I think this is a really great one to have on hand right next to your computer. It's the Family Tree Fact Book, and it collects facts and referencing information and definitions and tips, word translations, and all kinds of stuff that you want to keep handy while you're doing genealogy research. Right. So kind of all those go-to pieces of information. How does this work? Now, it's got information in it, but you can also kind of add your own, right? Yes. Most of the book is things like 
definitions and acronyms. There's a, a photo resolution guide. So um, it helps with things like you might have a photo that's 300 dots per inch. Well, what does that mean? And if I print that, is that going to look okay? And does it need to be that for my website? So there's a chart that helps you with questions like that. And there's photo preservation tips and um geography and one of my favorite sections is about names so it has typical surname variants it explains what patronymics and different kinds of naming systems are all in short <laughs> I'm kind of easily understandable um, terms you're not going to have to slog through a you know a great big chapter to find what you need um, and then there's a translation so it shows common names and then that same name the equivalents in different languages including Latin which is you know for people who are researching church records that's really valuable so and then you were asking about the customization of it which is one of my favorite aspects. Everybody has different, you know, maybe local library websites or there's a German website called Jedboss that I like to use. And you can customize, take notes on those websites, what the URL is, maybe your login information, the people that you've come across on those websites that you need to get back in touch with, your to-do list. There's a spot for that in the back of the book for you to add your own notes like that. And then there's also worksheets like source citation worksheets. So you can go through and make sure that you've collected all of this information when you're trying to document a source that you've used. There's a family group sheet that helps you keep track of information about a specific nuclear family and then a family tree. And there's, um, oh, there's a new DNA section. So sorry, I'm going on and on. Yeah. <laughs> Well, all those quick reference things. And I was thinking even when I dig into German records, it's really nice just to have what's the word for marriage? What's the word for birth and death, right? And just have those key things that you know, you're always looking them up. So how handy to have it right there in your in your hand. And this is a little book that we can just tuck in our computer bag and take it with us to the library. Yep, you don't have to use it as a doorstop. It's not giant. It's not going to awesome. give you shoulder cramps. You can just um, tuck it inside your coat or right in your research bag. Yeah, and it's all in one place. It's geared for genealogists, it sounds like. So, you know, although we can hop on Google and we can search for these things, it's kind of handy to have it all together. All in one place, sure. Love it. It's called the Family Tree Factbook. And this just came out, right? September 15th? Yes, brand new. So available at uh, familytreemagazine.com in the store. Sounds terrific. All right, we got to get our copy. Thank you so much for uh, telling us about it, Diane. You're welcome. Well, that wraps it up for the September 2018 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. You'll find the show notes webpage for this episode over at FamilyTreeMagazine.com slash podcasts. And there you'll find information on all the things we talked about and the website links that you're going to need. Again, I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, where you can listen to my free podcasts, the Genealogy Gems Podcast, which is also available for free through iTunes, and we have our own Genealogy Gems app. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. <laughs>